From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. We do a number of different things when we gather for worship as a family, and, uh, and one of the assumptions that we're walking with and kind of living out of is that God could meet us in, and meet you in any one of those moments. Uh, for some of us this morning, it will be a line or a moment in a song that is a place that God gets your attention or speaks something to you. Others of us, it'll be a moment of communion. Um, one of the reasons that we read the whole scripture lesson on its own entirety and then preach it, which isn't necessarily the tradition I grew up in, is because we think just reading the scripture is its own good, that it doesn't need to be expounded or explained, that many people will find um, kind of a moment of divine encounter just in hearing kind of the sacred text read. There's all these moments as we gather that we think God might speak to us. And sometimes it comes in big, giant, ecstatic moments, like the gospel story we're going to look at here in a few moments. And sometimes it comes, uh, as we've seen even throughout the scriptures, in a quiet, still whisper, in a moment of silence. And so as we prepare to open the scriptures, and I do my best to share a little bit of what's been on my heart this week, uh, I wonder if you'll join me for just a few moments as we center ourselves and, and get quiet open ourselves up in a way that that God might speak to us, maybe right here, even now, in the stillness. Uh, And so I invite you to just a few moments of silence here as we begin. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning, we are celebrating what's referred to as Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, It's the last Sunday in the season after Epiphany. And on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, which we'll have a service right in here at 7 o'clock, we'll begin a new season called Lent. Um, And so Transfiguration is kind of this doorway between two seasons uh, of great revelation about who God is and making our way uh, to the cross and ultimately the good news of Easter. And so every year about this time, we find ourselves reflecting on the story of Jesus' transfiguration. It's a story that's told in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, They all tell it slightly differently, but this morning we find ourselves in Matthew's version. And so I'll be reading uh, from chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. And this is what Matthew writes. He says that six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, And he brought them to the top of a very high mountain. And there he was transformed or transfigured right in front of them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. And Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Uh, And if you want, I'll make three shrines or tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I dearly love, and I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anybody about the vision until the human one is raised from the dead. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I wonder how you uh, react to a story like that. I wonder what happens inside of you when someone, when you read a story like that, especially a story in the Bible, when somebody reads a story like that to you, right? Uh, if, if for some reason you kind of dozed off or weren't listening, I'll just give you the highlights of what we just read. This is one of the strangest stories in all the Gospels, right? Here, here's what we heard. Uh, Jesus takes his inner circle, three of them, and he goes, guys, I want to show you something. Let's go to the top of that mountain. They go up on the top of the mountain, and when they get there, uh, Jesus literally starts emanating light out of his body. His skin begins to glow, and his clothes become dazzling white, uh, a feat in kind of ancient Near Eastern life. There's not a lot of dazzling white clothes, I would imagine, right? So his skin is radiating light. His clothes are bright, dazzling. And then they take a closer look and they realize he met somebody on top of this mountain and he's having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And if you're new to this story, they did not live when Jesus lived, right? The, these folks are from like way back, right? This is 100-year-old, 1,000-year-old uh, folks behind him, right? And Jesus is just having like this casual conversation with them. And as Peter, James, and John are watching this whole thing unfold, Peter says, well, this, let's hang out here. Uh, if it's cool, I'll just start making tents right now. And as he's beginning to like form a plan of how it is they're going to place themselves here and stay put, uh, we're told that a cloud literally envelops him, like shuts him up, like just takes out all of his senses. And so... Peter, James, and John fall to their face on the ground, kind of likely needing new britches at this point, and hear a voice from heaven say, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And terrified for what comes next and, and how to make sense out of this moment, still plastered to the earth, Jesus gently walks over and touches their shoulders and stands them back up on their feet and says, don't be afraid, but also don't tell anybody about what you just saw. And they make their way back down a mountain and Jesus and his disciples will make their way to Jerusalem where he'll ultimately die. What does that stir up in you? What do you do with stories like that? Like honestly, I have to wrestle with this every year, right? This isn't one of those lectionary stories you have to like sort out once every three years and I can just invite Spencer Halfcock from neighbor to neighbor in to preach, right? This is, this is one of those where I'm like, there's no dodging it. For seven or eight years, I've had to look at this strange story and figure out what in the life it might have to, world it might have to do with your life. That is, as we say to you, look, there is life in this book for you. 
Uh, I would commend a daily reading practice for you. Maybe you wake up in the morning before you get going with the kids and the family and work and all the things. You just spend a little bit of time. So I see you there sitting at the kitchen table, opening it up to Matthew 17, reading this and going, you know, we'll try this again next year. You know, like, what is this about? How, how do you respond to this story? Here's what I've found is that if you ask a bunch of like religious folks what they think about a sacred text, um, they, they'll often just lie to you, right? Or they don't even know they're lying and they'll lie to themselves. So let me tell you another strange story. And I'm curious what this brings up in you. Some of you may have heard about this. Um, it's been in the news. It showed up in my family text thread. Uh, but about 10, 11 days ago, uh, there's this tiny little college in Kentucky called Asbury. And uh, it was actually founded by Methodists. And, uh, and it's the kind of place, it's like a Christian liberal arts college. It's the kind of place where you're required to go to chapel. Um, this is part of why your parents pay the extra money to send you there, hoping this will sort of curb some of your other ambitions, right? At least we know every Wednesday somebody's going to get in their grill and sort of tell, right? And so you've you got to like walk your way in there, you got to put in your time, and then you can finally get on with your life, and they take attendance, and every week you got to do this thing. And so about 10 days ago, it was a Wednesday like any other, they wander into this chapel, these college kids, probably longing to be anywhere but there, a honestly unremarkable sermon is given, and at the conclusion of the service, most folks move on and go to their class like they were supposed to, but for whatever reason, there was a handful of students who hung back. They remain in the chapel, they begin praying, and they start singing together. Uh, there's no instruments plugged in, there's no agenda for this. But some of their friends notice that they're not in class or that they're missing, and so they're kind of curious what happened to, you know, whoever, and they uh, eventually track back that there's a handful of folks still hanging out in the chapel. And one thing leads to another, and before you know it, like, half the student body is ditching class to pray and to sing and to worship together. And continues to grow and word starts to spread on social media and this chapel that seats 1,500 people pretty quickly grows to having like 4,000 folks on the first day or two show up, two-thirds of them from out of state, fill this chapel and they pray and sing and share testimonies, and get up and publicly confess sin. And they do this 24-7. They, they don't go to sleep. It, it goes on like this for a whole week. For seven days, this happens, to the point where they have three other overflow rooms. This morning, I checked just to see, like, is it still going on? And now they've just said, forget the building. We'll do it outside. And the whole quad is full of thousands of people still today singing, praying, confessing, and, um, and so I wonder, when you hear a story like that, when you hear testimonies from people who are in that room saying, um, I've never experienced another space like the one that I was just in, where five hours feels like five minutes. I heard one uh, older woman who had kind of made pilgrimage there just to see it for herself said, the 10 minutes I spent in there, I'll remember for the rest of my life, permanently been marked by. 
People struggle to find language for it. This isn't what you've probably seen before. There is no bulletin. There's no agenda. There's no screens. There's no haze. There's no famous preacher. There's no gifted musicians. In fact, some of my favorite stories are that those people who you heard of have all sort of called the school and been like, hey, uh, I'd be happy to pitch in and help. And they're like, you can sit in the back. And they've reserved the stage and all of the front seats for these students. And they're kind of protecting them from all the crazies who are gathering outside and saying, what God is doing here is beautiful. And these students begin to say, I've never been in a more gentle and loving place. There's a peace I can't even describe. There's unknown delights that I'm, I'm experiencing as I sit in this room. Something really wild is happening. I wonder when you hear a story like that, or when you don't, it has been picked up by NBC and uh, CNN and stuff like that, pretty low on the page. Tucker, Tucker Carlson covered it. Uh, he actually wanted to move his show there, apparently, and they said, we're good. Um, <laughs> when you hear a story like that, right, what does it pull out of you? How do you respond? Here's my hunch. The way you respond to that story is probably how you would have responded to Peter, James, and John. If they came down that mountain and broke the code of secrecy they'd been given, and they began to tell you what they just saw up there, my hunch is what you would say to that would not be all that different. And I get it. Like, uh, some of us, we grew up in spaces uh, where this sort of thing, it was, people tried to manufacture it. They tried to attempt it. They tried to schedule it. They told us on Thursday night, we're having revival at 7 p.m. We've got a famous preacher and a sick band. Show up, we'll turn it to 11, right? And we found ourselves in those rooms where the preacher would just keep pushing and the music would just keep swelling. And if they didn't get the response, we'd hit that bridge one more time. You know what I mean? Until every single person had come down to the altar and we had all had some sort of experience. And then on the other side of that, many of us, we're, we're still recovering from it. I have people in my immediate family who have not set foot in a church for 10, 15 years. Their brother's a pastor because of the ways they felt manipulated and abused in spaces just like that. In fact, my hunch is for some of you this morning, even some of what went down on the first side of the service already made you uncomfortable. We were already pressing into some slightly emotional spaces, some lyrics that uh, were a little concerning. And so I get it. I hear that. I know who we are. Last night I showed uh, my daughter a video of kind of what was going on in the chapel, and there's all these college, like way more, like they must have some sort of deal with the fire marshal, but like way more than should have been in that room. Jumping, clapping, dancing, screaming, right? And Stella, she looks at me, she's like, I wish our church was like that. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm pretty sure everybody, at most people at our church are glad it's not, you know? <laughs> like I know my people. I know who we are. I hear you. I see you. I get it. But I saw this um, tweet that was really challenging to me this week from another pastor. And he was just expressing how saddened he was at what he perceived to be. Um, folks, my generation are older. I'm 43, right? Our engagement with this story versus our engagement with um, this little podcast that came out a year or two ago called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And 
he, he kind of looked at the church and said, I think we need to be really careful about the fact there's a generational shift taking place and that people who are my age or older who have some background in the church, we can straight consume some rise and fall of Mars Hill. We put it in the top five podcasts on the planet for a few months talking about the dysfunction and abuse and harm in a church. But when something really beautiful begins to take shape among Gen Z, our first response is like, critique and skepticism and hurt. And I remember, the, part of the reason I'm standing here in this place is that I was once a 20 or 30 year old who looked at folks who were so jaded and cynical by what they had seen in the church that they couldn't see any future or hope or reason for trying anything different. Let's just ride this thing out. And so this morning, like in a really gentle way, I want to I wanna wrestle with this experience the transfiguration experience, the experience that's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky, which I don't know what that's about. I haven't been there. I'm not signing off on it, but I think it's a great opportunity for us to just sort of think more critically about our own reaction to these sorts of things. So here's the first thing I would tell you, that if, if we cut ourselves off from the possibility of this sort of experience with God, not only are we cutting ourselves off from pretty much every spiritual tradition on the planet, we're also cutting ourselves off from our own story. That these sorts of moments fill the scriptures. And not only scriptures, but the history that's led us here. In the Hebrew scriptures, I'll just give you a few examples. Um, Moses, hanging out, tending his sheep one day on the same mountain he's always been on, when he comes across a bush that he was, only, he was the only person there, right? But he comes across a bush, and his testimony later to us is, I saw this bush catch fire, but it didn't burn. It was just like burning, but not burning. It was like the craziest thing. And then as I'm staring at this burning bush, a voice from heaven said to me, take off your shoes, for you're on holy ground. And Moses takes off his shoes, and he has this strange experience. Isaiah, praying, all of a sudden finds himself somehow lifted to the heavens, hanging out with angels and archangels. And one of them takes some hot coal out of a fire and sticks it in his mouth and he starts chewing on it. And comes out the other side like, y'all, I have been a part of some crazy stuff. I saw some things, right? We, we were literally singing the words that he spoke on the other exchange of that. Peter, hanging out one day, takes a nap in the afternoon goes into some deep trance is what he tells us. And in this trance, in this weird dream that he's awake for vision thing, he says that God lowers a sheet full of dirty animals and tells him to get up, kill, and eat. And it will change his life. He'll wake up and he'll begin to tell that story to other people who will have the same reaction response that many of us have, either when we're being honest with ourselves about the transfiguration story or the story of Asbury, right? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement that we're a part of, some 200 plus years, still sort of living out sort of the gifts of what he started, had a moment just like this himself. He said one night he uh, wandered into a church for like a midweek Bible study and somebody was reading um, Luther's commentary on Romans, which by the way is not a page turner. And as he's listening, he said his heart was strangely warmed. 
And in that moment, he knew, maybe for the first time in his life, even though he'd been preaching and doing this gig for a while, he said that he knew that he knew that he knew. It was actually true. Right? Yeah, it, this isn't just sort of like in the Bible times. It's like not just in our, found, like our history as a church and our movement. I, I heard this story this week about Johnny Cash. I never heard this before. But apparently there was a moment in his life where he was in such a deep pit of despair that he decided to end his life. And in like Johnny Cash fashion, the way he decided he would do it is he was going to climb down in to this cave that was near his home, these sort of long tunnel of caves. And he decided, I'm going to get so deep and lost in the center of the earth that I won't be able to find my way out. And there in the belly of this place in the darkness, I'll lay down and die. And it's what he did. He got into the deepest part he could. His flashlight dies. He lays down and he prepares to just wither away when he says he had an encounter with God. That God spoke to him and told him how loved he was and led him back out of that cave into the light. If we... Here's the thing I I, kind of want to challenge especially those of us who are maybe prone to some cynicism around this. One of the things I love about Church on Morgan, I've been thinking about us this week, one of the things that I so value and I think has made us such salt and light to use churchy language in our community is that we actually deeply take serious the witness and testimony of other people. That the way that we got to the position that we have on human sexuality is that we trusted our queer siblings were telling us the truth when they told us what their experience was. That the conversation that we're continuing to have about race and becoming an increasingly anti-racist church has, is attempting and knows that our flourishing is at the center of listening to the witness of our black and brown siblings. That, that these people aren't crazy, that what they're sharing with us is true. And if we're going to do that in all these other ways, we should also do it with those who come back from an experience with God and say, listen to me, I have seen and experienced something. And why would we cut ourselves off from this? Besides, there's just way too much of it in the world to act like it doesn't exist. And so while suspicion is nice and keeps us comfortable, I want to I encourage you to, to stay a little open-handed about it. But here's, um, here's more of the tone of the critique that I heard from the people I follow on Twitter. These are my friends. This is probably what was bouncing around in my head if you asked me this on Tuesday. One person tweeted this. They said, sure, there's mass shootings, people literally dying under rubble from earthquakes, but God's going to show up in a tiny town in Kentucky for a week-long concert. Got it. Right? Another person wrote this, uh, you know what, when the students march out of the chapel and mass organize against the crushing unjust policies of their school and their professors and their churches, well then maybe I'll be open to calling this a revival. Right? This, um, this is probably where I would have been. This is, this is probably my first instinct. You, you, wanna, you think God's moving? I'll know it when God's moving you to the streets, right? Uh, 
I'm not sure kind of the highest value right now is for you to just keep singing the same song for an hour. There's some really important work that needs to be done in your city, in your community. Heck, just start with your campus, right? Like I have a hard time wrapping my arm around it. But here's, here's where I want to challenge us on that. What we know is that often the change that, that we long so desperately to see in the world actually comes on the other side of these sorts of experiences. That it is these sorts of experiences that have led to the breakthroughs in history that we're most proud of and cherish. Here's an example. I don't know, it, when I was in high school, we learned about the first and second great awakening. I was thinking about it this week. Like, I remember being in English like, class in ninth or 10th grade and reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, which I do not commend to you. But, um, but I remember th- reading that, and I was like thinking back, and I was like, I, I lived in a fairly like, middle of the road, even progressive part of the country, and I just was like, why were they teaching us, why were we reading sermons in public high school? Why did, they, why did my history class include anything about the first and second awakening, these like mass revivals that shaped and formed our country? And that's when I realized, oh, that's why we had to learn about it, right? That you couldn't tell the history of our country without telling the story of some of these revivals, that many of the movements that, that we love and celebrate as a community, uh, things like the abolition movement, were largely coalesced and found their structure and their enthusiasm out of a revival, that women's rights were initiated and ignited through some of these revivals that were taking place, that even things like the idea of the free press was the fruit of this sort of revival that was happening in the country. The civil rights movement, led by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? There's, the reason why our schools taught us this is because they had to teach us about abolition and women's rights and the rest, and so much of that story could not be separated from this sort of unexplained movement from God. You know, how does that work? What does that look like? About 100 years ago, uh, there was a social scientist, a guy named William James, who wrote this classic, famous text that most sociology majors, psychology majors, even religious majors now have to read at some point. He wrote it around 1900, uh, but it was called The Variety of Religious Experiences. And what it was was just a pure scientific take on the testimony of people who say that they've had an experience with the divine. And so from a scientific lens, he sat down and said, I want to see if there are any patterns. What leads to these moments? What's happening in people's brains? What, what kind of behaviors are any output? Like, what does this look like? How will we verify? Is it actually real, right? Kind of coming at it from a scientific lens. And there's so much kind of fascinating stuff in there. Um, one of the things is just crazy, kind of like coincidence, I suppose. Um, but there's a guy named Andrew Newberg who is kind of a, a psychologist today who just released a new book called The Variety of Spiritual Experiences. It's kind of like a second edition 100 years later, and he's the most recent guest on Dax Shepard, just from Thursday. You can tune in and listen to him kind of process all this same stuff. What do you do when somebody says they're having an experience with God? How do you know if it's actually happening or not? Even if we can never know it's happening, what, what does it look like historically happens when people come out the other side of this? There's so many fascinating things there, but one of the things they say and they find in all their data that often these kind of experiences uh, provide a revelation, that people walk away knowing something or understanding something that they didn't understand or know walking in. 
First of all, people often report having a revelation or an assurance of God's love. This is sort of the trip, honestly, where people come back and go, dude, I saw some things. It's all love, man. It's love. God's love. I'm loved. I think I'm supposed to love. And we're like, okay, all right, bro. You know? (laughs) However you find yourself in that moment, the epiphany is almost always the same. A deep assurance of love. This is John Wesley's story. I felt my heart strangely warmed. For the first time I knew, I was truly, deeply loved. Out of that assurance of love comes two other revelations people tend to have. One is often kind of a call or a mission. Moses, he's on the mountain with the burning bush, take my kicks off or shoes off, like, let's go, what am I supposed to do, like, what's happening here? And in that moment, assured of God's presence in his life, God says to him, I've got a job for you. I've heard the cries of your people, that they're being enslaved and oppressed, and you are going to set them free. It's time to go down the mountain and do that. He receives a, a call, a mission. The third revelation that people have when they're in an experience like this, once they recognize that God's love is for them, is that they're often uh, convicted of some broken way of seeing the world, and that's lifted from them, that their prejudice is removed bigotry is kind of expunged. This is what happens with Peter. Peter has this crazy dream of the sheet with these animals. And he went into that nap, convinced that Gentiles were filthy, dirty, rotten people, right? Non-Jewish folks did not belong. He has this dream where he sees all the food he's not supposed to eat and be told to get up, kill, and eat. And by the way, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And he becomes the first and greatest missionary to those very people. He emerges from that nap convicted of his broken ways of seeing the world. You know, for a community like ours, and I never want to speak on behalf of everybody, I hope that's clear. We're all just sort of wrestling. I'm sharing my perspective. Tell your neighbors it's trash when you get home. It's fine. But for a community like ours, many of us, full inclusion and affirmation of our queer siblings is like, core to our belief in the ways that God has moved. And it's what's made this revival really difficult is because it's happening at a campus that doesn't fully affirm and celebrate the dignity of all people in the way that we feel like they should. And much of the commentary that I've seen online from people outside of it is looking at that and saying, how could God possibly bless a place this bigoted, right? And so one of these courageous kind of progressive um, platforms actually decided to go there and witness it for themselves. And what they said is that as they began to interview some of the queer students on campus and ask them about the revival and what they thought about this, students who are very much working to see their campus change, whose very lives depend on it, they said, I want to be clear, and I hope you'll tell your audience, we welcome this move of God. We welcome it. And we're seeing our school change right now in the midst of it. One student said that the best way I can explain it to you is that as my peers are loved profoundly and deeply by God in this unbelievable way, they're becoming more loving towards me. So will you please quit trying to shut it down? The the change, this is the ultimate like aha of the transfiguration story that we come to every year. That we watch 
Jesus' skin turn to light and his clothes be bright white. And we get so obsessed with like what transformation is happening to Jesus when the tradition has always said Jesus didn't change at all. He was the same guy walking up that mountain as he was coming down. The transfiguration, the transformation was the disciples who were with him. That it's our own transformation that's at play here, right? And so just a couple closing things. I know I need to wrap it up. Here's... I don't know what's going on at Asbury, and I don't feel like I have to say one way or another, right? Um, But I do see, when we look at our own stories, when we listen to the testimony of others, that part of the way that God works is there is this gift, there is this need to pull us out of the darkness for a season that we might be sent back in to change it, right? And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. That if you go back and read in chapter 16, right before this story, Jesus breaks the news to Peter, James, and John. Hey guys, it has been so fun. Like extra bread, people getting up and walking, you know, all that's been amazing, but we're going to do something different now. We're headed to Jerusalem. We're going to suffer and we're going to die. And, um, and this is what liberation is going to look like now. And Peter says, uh, hell no, that's not on my agenda at all. Um, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he goes, if you're going to follow me, you got to actually follow me. And following me is going to look like embracing the suffering of this world. But I'm going to show you how to do it. Now come with me. And he takes him up on this mountain to show him how it is that he'll resist evil, injustice, and oppression for the rest of his life. In just a short 40 days, we'll move from Ash Wednesday to another hill, the second hill. We're about to walk through a valley. On the first hill, Jesus' bright light and shiny clothes, and Elijah and Moses are his friends, and God of heaven is saying, this is my son whom I love, and just a short few weeks from now, he'll be on another hill, naked, beaten, right? His, his two companions will be two thieves on either side of him at a cross, and it'll be a centurion, a Roman guard who's responsible for his death, who will ultimately look up at him after he's died and said, I actually think that might have been the Son of God. And he says to the disciples, if you want to know how to get through that second hill, you got to spend some time on the first. It's this first hill that sustains the second. It's the first hill that fills us and calls us, and we find the resources of God for this. There's this uh, black church theologian named Barbara Holmes, and uh, she said something similar about the civil rights movement. She said this, she said, you cannot face German shepherds and fire hoses without your own resources. There must be God and stillness at the very center of your being, right? I was thinking about this morning, I made this joke earlier, but like, especially as we're about to go five to 10 minutes over, and I thought about all the non-white church experiences I've ever had and how that would be completely disregarded. And it started making me wonder, like, I wonder if there's just like a known intuition there that folks who literally have to face injustice and oppression and evil every day, recognizing like we need some time on the first mountain, that this isn't sort of a waste of our time. It's the only way we survive. It's where our breakthrough is. Thomas Merton called it, said it this way. He said, um, your life is both a spring and a stream, 
and your stream is all of your action in the world. But that water in your stream is filled by a spring, and that's your contemplation. That's your life with God. If you don't tap into that spring, there will be no stream. And so what's kind of the end game here? Am I, do I think, are we all going to get in the buses out front and go to Asbury after this, right? We're not. We can't afford the buses. Um, I don't think you have to. I think God's present with us right here, right now. But what I would say to like especially my people, and you know what I mean, my Church on Morgan people, is that the thing I felt really challenged by this week is that um, the well-intended I can't help but wonder if our assault on the usefulness of thoughts and prayers has backfired on us. That, that the change we deeply want to see in the world, the justice that we're longing for, might actually require not less prayer but more. That the transformation we're longing to see happen in ourselves and others might actually be on the other side of a revival led by some folks who have no idea what they're doing but simply spending time in the presence of God. May God replace some of our cynicism with wonder this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.